Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode I have a chat with John Grindrod, the author of four books which all explore different elements of Britain's post-war and contemporary architecture. I really love John's writing because it's got a very personal thread running through it as well as social history perspective so looking at how these buildings and how this architecture had such a great impact on people's day-to-day lives and just seeing how the UK's panned out. John is the author of Concretopia which is a celebration of post-war British architecture. He's also the author of Outskirts which explores greenbelt areas of the UK while recounting his own personal experience growing up on the edge of the Greenbelt on New Addington Council Estate in Croydon. How to Love Brutalism, which is pretty self-explanatory in the title. And finally, Iconicon. This is John's latest book, which came out on the 3rd of March 2022, so this year as we're recording. Iconicon explores the Britain we've created since 1980, looking at millennium monuments such as the Dome, as well as wimpy homes, riverside apartments and out-of-town shopping malls. Now before we get into today's episode, I'll give you the brief rundown of some of the things me and John discuss. Firstly, we look at the key characteristics of post-war architecture and what actually got John interested in this kind of architecture in the first place. What the purpose of the Green Belt is and the issues going on surrounding it. John's love of brutalism. Then we take a look at John's new book, Iconicon. And we finish up with a look at the ups and downs of Croydon, which is both our mutual hometown. I do just want to say a quick thank you while I'm here to Kerner UZ for the rating on iTunes. And this is the first one I've actually got from the Czech Republic. So somewhere a bit different other than the UK, Australia and that sort of places. So thank you. That's really, really lovely. Um, and I also just wanted to thank and welcome Simon, a new patron over on Patreon. So thanks for joining us over there. But without further delay, let's crack on with the episode now. And I really hope you enjoy it. You're the author of four books and they all explore different elements of post-war and to a degree contemporary architecture. And I feel like you always have a thread of the social and emotional perspective running through your writing which I really like and I do want to kind of get deeper into that but I think it would be really nice to start with an overview of the key characteristics of post-war architecture for the listeners so you know what does that look like and you know why has it played such an important role in shaping Britain today? Well, I mean, that is, you know, it's such a big theme, post-war architecture. One of the things I quite like about it is that the more I sort of delved into uh, the background and the the sources and the inspiration for a lot of post-war architecture, the more I realised there were lots of different aspects to it, that, and some of which are quite contradictory, which I which I sort of found, found interesting, because I think quite often it's talked as if it's one unifying whole but it isn't it isn't really and I suppose a lot of it springs from uh in Britain a lot of it springs from this idea of you know rebuilding after the war you know there's been sort of blitz damage but then a lot of it also goes back before that into ideas of trying to kind of make 
towns and cities a bit more um, uh, either trying to kind of rebuild slum areas that were left over from the Industrial Revolution and uh, places that, that actually sort of weren't really working on the ground. So a lot of lot of cities that didn't really have any open space in the middle of them or um, had very, very crowded conditions. And so you get these ideas of satellite towns. So you get garden cities sort of in the first half of the 20th century and then you get sort of the post-war new town movement in the in the sort of the second half of the 20th century. Um, where you're basically the idea of that was to try and move people out of the city centres, out of um, sort of very built-up, Sort of industrial areas, um, so that you could int- introduce more green space into those areas in the middle of the city and make them a bit less dense. And also, the people that move out get more green space and, and less dense kind of surroundings. So there's a sort of sort of philosophical kind of idea behind that around trying to combine the best of the countryside with the best of the town, which is quite interesting. And then I guess another I guess another characteristic is technological change and immediately after the war there are prefabs sort of built to sort of rehouse people a sort of temporary housing program places that were supposed to be only only supposed to last for 10 years but then lasted for a really long time in some cases uh, the idea of prefabs was that they were built using prefabricated technology so you would get kind of like whole sort of panels of them delivered on the back of a lorry and sort of bolted together on site and People had sort of all mod cons in them for the first time, rather than having outdoor toilets. And they would, ha- you know, they would have indoor toilets and a fridge and hot and cold running water and all that sort of stuff. So, a lot of, a lot of the kind of post-war stuff is sort of tied up with either technological change in terms of how they're built. So those prefabs sort of become, you know, the sort of basis for how a lot of tower blocks are built in a sort of prefabricated sort of IKEA flat pack kind of way. Um, and then, um, but then also sort of technology in terms of what you have in the home and, you know, the sort of utilities and stuff you have you have at home that people can can use and experience. So you get that and then sort of moving through the sort of post-war period, people sort of trying out stuff. So you get the first high rise built in Britain in 1951 in Harlow, um, get a Festival of Britain in 1951. Uh, showcasing all these very space age sort of dandere type designs like the Skylon and the Dome of Discovery and that sort of inspires a whole wave of sort of quite jaunty festival style architecture that gets built in the sort of early 50s up to the sort of early 60s and then in the 60s you get a much more kind of gritty kind of arrival of, of brutalism in a sort of in a big way which are you know sort of very much the opposite of that sort of festival architecture, which is all very light and spindly and sort of everything resting on little feet. And um, brutalism is all sort of great big sculptural objects using kind of the shape of the uh, of the architecture almost as a as a as a giant piece of sculpture. And the the the, the idea of functionalism. There's a lot of stuff, a lot of talk about functionalism with post-war architecture with you know buildings being very functional but actually the weird thing about brutalism is a lot of those buildings aren't that you know it aren't about being functional they're about being sort of dramatic and theatrical in some way and sort of emotion having a sort of emotional sort of pull to them rather than just being merely sort of a, a functional object 
Um, and then as you kind of move forward a bit, I guess people sort of start to develop sort of more low-rise stuff um, and you get very dense kind of like, you get a lot of those those estates where it's difficult to find people's front doors because you're never quite yeah. sure well how the numbering works, which is always a kind of like clue that you've stumbled into a kind of 60s or 70s kind of <laughs> area because there was a lot of experiment with kind of how dense an area is and how many, you know, how we can build how, as many places you were getting a high-rise block but without building a high-rise block. So you get these really, really sort of cunningly designed kind of estates. You know, in the early 70s, we get this big oil crisis and the three-day week. Sort of money begins to run out for all of these big schemes. In the early 80s, you get the right to buy. And then that kind of kills off people building these these great big kind of utopian council estates and stuff. And that really is a massive change, really, in the sorts of stuff that gets built. And after that, we don't really have anything like that anymore. So being built certainly and then the things that are built aren't really maintained that well so that becomes a bit of a sad story so it's a kind of quick, <laughs> quick, whistle quick stop yeah. tour, I suppose. Yeah. I mean what what is it for you that why do you like post-war architecture so much why did you want to write about this where did that sort of come from for you so I grew up on a post-war estate outside Croydon called New Addington which is sort of on a hill right on the edge of the green belt um and it you know it's a really big council estate and it's got all sorts of different sorts of architecture there from sort of suburban semis to just high-rise blocks and you know all sorts of different things going on and I always find it a really difficult place to explain to anyone that hadn't been there because it isn't really like anywhere else I'd ever been and so I remember I went off to Polytechnic and, you know, people would ask where you came from. I sort of found it really difficult to explain where I came from because it didn't really sound like anywhere that anyone else came from. It was, it was sort of, it was difficult. And I, I sort of, I think like a lot of people, you take for, grant, take for granted where you grow up. Mm. You take for granted, you know, the architecture that's around you and the sort of house you've grown up in or the flat or the whatever it is. And it's only really when you move away that you have any perspective on it. And I guess when I moved away from Croydon, and I lived in Croydon for about 30 years, when I moved away sort of in my early 30s, I realised I was sort of quite obsessed with that post-war architecture that you get in the central Croydon, which is a great big kind of concrete blocks and the, the sort of the big shopping centre and the towers. And then the sort of more sort of suburban modernism of somewhere like New Addington or some of the other estates in Croydon. And I realised, I basically wanted to find out more about them because I found them very, very interesting. And I realised there wasn't really, there wasn't really anything that could kind of tell me that sort of stuff in a sort of friendly, sort of approachable way, really. I think, you know, it's become, become a much more sort of, spoken about subject but I suppose back back in the kind of early noughties it sort of felt like there weren't that many people that were that were talking about that kind of architecture so I would so I just became a bit of a geek really I just well I didn't become a bit of a geek I was and now you're cool because everybody loves it well that's weird isn't it yeah I mean and no one saw that coming yeah you're ahead of the yeah. time it was weird really because when we were when when I wrote Concretopia or when I started to write Concretopia and we were trying to get a publisher interested in it me and my agent. Um, 
literally no one was that fussed, you know, that everyone was kind of going, no one is interested in this subject. This is really, you know, really boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, so basically like all, all the publishers were sort of turned it down. And then um and then it turned out actually loads of people were really interested in this subject. And they and the only reason that, that everyone thought nobody was is because nobody had been really sort of providing them any anything to prove that. Yeah, I mean, I do like that you do provide that sort of personal and and social element to it, because I think you bring the places to life more for like your average person who doesn't know much about architecture, they can learn sort of the history, but then also, they can see themselves in it a little bit, I think, because you do obviously talk about in outskirts about your own personal life. And then you interview, like you've done so many interviews with people and how it was for them when they moved into these new builds and that sort of thing and how amazing it was for them and it's really nice to sort of hear what an impact architecture has on people's lives because you kind of a lot of the time you you see buildings and you don't sort of think how people's sort of like personal lives are so encapsulated in these places and what an impact they had on them yeah absolutely I was sort of what I sort of became it became obvious the more people I spoke to that this was a sort of secret history, really, that was in danger of disappearing, that, you know, we might not, you know, these people who lived in these places when they were first built are all very old now. And, you know, that that, that actually, if they weren't going to tell people their stories, they, they would sort of disappear a bit, really. And And because there was a bit of an ideological kind of backlash against this stuff, you don't hear a lot of positive stories about council estates, you don't hear a lot of positive stories about about kind of modernist towers and that sort of thing. You know, you hear very negative things, but not always that stuff that you hear isn't always true. And quite often it isn't, it wasn't the case for, you know, for people, you know. I remember one of the people I interviewed said that who was a lecturer, who'd grown up in around Elephant and Castle and he was a lecturer now around Elephant and Castle and he would take students out to kind of see some of the kind of tower blocks. And he said that whenever he took students out, somebody would all inevitably come out of one of the towers and say, you see this building here, the architect who designed it killed themselves. And it just became this kind of like, and they never had, it was always a complete lie. But you get these weird myths that grow up and they become these kind of generic myths that aren't even, you know, they're not even interesting because they're, they're, they're so generic, they're just churned out. And so part, I guess part of trying to write these books has been trying to reclaim a bit of, history that otherwise might just vanish and unremarked you know and that actually we end up with a sort of a narrative that isn't true yeah I I think you know what you're saying about sort of once you leave the place Mm. like you left Corridor then you kind of got interested in it I think that's true it's almost I feel like maybe it's a bit of a comfort thing it's like what you've known the architecture you know and you kind of then feel like oh Croydon that's home that you know you recognize the buildings you recognize all of it and despite all the slating it gets it's to you that's a bit of a comfort those buildings in a way I don't know if you sort of feel like that yeah definitely you know my nan used to live in Slough and then she moved to Aldershot I mean we kind of you know we used to kind of so I used to travel from Croydon to Slough and then to Croydon to Aldershot you know we never used to go to you know Windsor or somewhere like historic we would always go to somewhere that was quite like Croydon so you know as a kid I was just used to just going to places that were a bit like Croydon and just thinking that was what the whole world was like so 
it was only <laughs> yeah. it was a bit of a shock really when I got in my 20s really and I sort of started to go to other places by myself and it wasn't the world wasn't all like that um I know you do get very sort of what you know because I, I used to think that sort of like as a kid I thought oh everybody's been to London for the day or whatever yeah. but they haven't they really haven't some people like you know, country people never really come into the city and perhaps the other way around, city people might never go to the country. So um, you have your very own little worldview when you're a kid and you sort of then realise, oh, there's more, it expands beyond this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I bumped into somebody I went to school with, I remember, and I said to him, you know, that I was working in Covent Garden and he said, he said, oh, I went there once. And you know, I thought, well, you know, you're living in zone five. This is really weird, you know, to kind of like never go into, you know, yeah. never to go into London. But, um, you know, it's it's not even people from, you know, the country don't go into the cities. Quite often it's, you know, if you live on a peripheral estate or you live somewhere that is difficult to kind of get in and out of, or your life is very, very kind of centred around your local community, it can, it can feel really alienating to kind of go into, you know, the city centre or you know, somewhat, somewhere like that where you don't have those connections, you don't have those landmarks, you feel a bit uncomfortable, you don't feel like it's for you. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that, that was another thing you wrote in Outskirts about you living on the edge of, um, what did you say, the last road in London, and you you lived on the edge of the green belt. I mean, back then, the transport links to New Addington weren't amazing. Mm. Could you explain as well what, what the green belt is? And uh, I mean, obviously, there's quite a few issues surrounding that now as well um the whole concept of it yeah the green belt is sort of quite interesting because i i think i guess if, if you were to ask people why the green belt existed they would probably think oh it's like an environmental thing or it was to sort of stop people building great big council estates all over it and it's not definitely neither of those things and actually the things it was built to that things it was built for was to stop was to create an edge where the city didn't spread forever because it sort of began as a sort of movement in the sort of early 20th century, uh, the late 19th, early 20th century, when you began to get a lot of um, estates that were being built around either train lines that were coming out of London and then later sort of A roads and that sort of thing as the car began to be a, be a sort of big thing in the early 20th century. and you sort of suddenly got um, lots of those 1920s and 30s sort of ribbon developments of semi-detached houses along major roads out of towns and cities. And suddenly there was a moment where people realised that that if we didn't stop that, they would run along every road out of every town and city and you would end up with no countryside because they would Mm -hmm. just kind of, you would just end up with this terrible use of land where you know you have these these houses with really big gardens sitting alongside a road and then they're blocking off all the countryside so you can't see any of it or don't have access to it because it's sort of then hidden away um so the idea of the green belt is to try and stop people building forever around Kansas City to create an edge and uh that sort of local authorities and some charities and places sort of started to buy up land around the edge of London and Manchester and Sheffield and kind of other 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 cities and uh, to stop people doing that. And then gradually that was turned back in the, in the 50s, that was turned into 
a sort of official government policy and everyone was told to kind of have a create a green belt and to main uh, maintain the edge of it so that so that people couldn't encroach on it and the idea of it is that you can't you know if you're a landowner so if you're a farmer that owns a great big load of acreage in the green belt you can't just flog it off to to barrett homes and they can just build an estate on it you can't you can't sell it for that use so if you do sell your land it just has to remain open space it's a bit weasel mm. words because the greenness of the green belt isn't necessarily very environmentally green and uh that is a kind of issue and i think actually the also access to the green belt on you know that there's a lot of if you look at all of the pamphlets in the 1930s you'd think that we were all out having a picnic on box hill all the time <laughs> yeah. and that obviously isn't what's happened with the green belt we don't all go and do that and that isn't you know that isn't the case and for most for the most part it's like inaccessible bits of farmland that we're not welcome on um and also you know a lot of kind of chemicals and stuff you know so you know they can be quite sterile environments a lot of those fields rather than the kind of you know the greenness doesn't always connote sort of healthy thriving wildlife that we might think it does yeah i mean what do you think in regards to um obviously some people think we should build on it because obviously there is a housing crisis in london and then obviously you get the other people who feel like well it is protecting nature but as you said i mean some of it is actually not really is it um i mean do you think they should start to build on it or i think i mean it's a really kind of it's a massively complicated thing i think one of the good things about the green belt is that it it has stopped that building to a large extent people do occasionally kind of break the rules and build something but it has it's a blunt instrument and as a blunt instrument it's kind of done the job of a blunt instrument in that it's indiscriminately kind of like just called a halt really um but i do think i mean i think there's a there's a couple of things one which is you know, you look at like things like golf course. Golf courses really get on my wick. Golf <laughs> courses are like a real like bet noir with me. And I do think, you know, you could easily just, I mean, they are like the least biodiverse places you could imagine. You know, they have, mm. you know, your very pres- prescripted grass and trees. And, you know, that's not an environment that's going to let anything thrive. So I sort of, you know, I don't think we would, I don't think we would miss anything environmentally if a few golf courses got turned into housing. Um, and so I sort of, you know, I, I guess I think that. But generally, I'm, I think it's quite a good thing to have, as the environmental crisis that we've got is getting worse and worse all the time. If we did allow ourselves to start building on the green belts, I think that would be a catastrophe because once they're built on, you'd never get them back. They never, they never go back to being countryside again so i think we would be better off there's a there's a basically there was a brilliant plan by an architect called peter barber who um who designed a lot of amazing social housing and stuff and he he had this brilliant idea very provocative idea of basically walling the edge of the green belt around london um and then making it into like a four-story kind of like citadel but um 
you can kind of so you would turn that into kind of housing all the way around the edge and schools and you know hospitals and everything was built into this this kind of structure and then you would start to kind of densify sort of going back into the city on all those very very low density suburban estates on the edge um and i you know i mean it would absolutely cause the biggest fuss of all time in, in you know in britain it would absolutely you know people would become hysterical but i loved it as an idea i thought it was brilliant so <laughs> so that yeah I'm, I'm with him i mean it is a complex issue isn't it it's um not so yeah. black and white and uh no. I, I see where you're coming from i mean the green belt has obviously got a lot of benefits but then like you say things like golf courses well bit of a i mean hardly anyone uses them they're pretty exclusive aren't they um mm. so could be mm. used for something better would you say like the green belt round where you live, has that changed at all since you were a kid or has it remained the same and there's countryside and fields? And It's very similar. It is very similar. I guess the thing that I've noticed is it's a lot more full of rubbish. People do a lot more kind of like fly tipping and kind of, you know, it's just a load more rubbish everywhere. So it's less green than you would imagine because it's just full of like old bits of builders rubble everywhere. But also, I think, so if you have a national park, I think people sort of equate the Green Belt with a national park, you know, without realising, you know, that they're very, very different. But I think, you know, it's easy to kind of look at this protected green area and think that, you know, it's got a lot in common. They haven't really got anything in common. And national parks and those kind of areas have got, usually have people looking after them and they have rules about what you can grow and all that sort of stuff. And you don't have those rules in the green belt. No one looks after it. Um, there is no body that is going around going, oh, you know, we should replant those trees now in the green belt because somebody's, you know, you know, widened that field or whatever. No one's doing that. Um, and one thing I sort of have noticed is I think a lot of the the sort of what would have been sort of m- trees of a kind of sort of medium age when the green belt was sort of fixed in the sort of 30s and 40s and 50s are now really old and some of them are falling over and there isn't really no one's kind of looking after that stuff so gradually we're sort of losing a lot of that big you know a lot of the big the big trees and the sort of the sort of historic kind of woodland and growth in those places because no one's really looking after it in a way that they would if it was a national park people would go oh we've had a big catastrophe there so we're going to plant a load of trees no one's really doing no one does that in the green belt because it's no one's responsibility really yeah I, it's funny you say that because i think the name is quite misleading the green belt it sounds very like it's quite national parky and if you don't know a lot about it you do just picture like you said beautiful green field going out for a picnic um and yeah obviously a not a lot of it is like that. So, uh, yeah, it's a shame, really. But I suppose mm. what can you do if um, nobody's in charge of it, nobody's sort of yeah. uh, keeping an eye on it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, switching gear from that now, uh, I did want to talk to you about brutalism because obviously you you love it. Mm-hmm. You know, what? obviously it gets such a bad rep. People think it is ugly and depressing. And, I mean, what would you say to somebody who, who thinks that, like, well, you know, how can they appreciate this form of architecture? 
I mean, there's a bit of me that kind of thinks, you know, you're in a hiding to nothing, aren't you, trying to kind of... <laughs> yeah, like make their mind like up, haven't they? Like. I mean, yeah, exactly. And it's fine, you know. I mean, you know, if people don't want to like brutalism, you know, that's fine. But I think actually loads of us do like it. And, it, and I think that, for me, was more the issue. It wasn't so much that we have to persuade people who don't like brutalism to like brutalism. It was more that the people who did like brutalism felt really, really shy about saying it because you would just get monstered for saying that you liked it. Um, so that, I think, felt, always felt like more of the issue for me, really. Um, and, you know, I I love it for sort of lots of different reasons. Part, part of it is very, you know, it's quite sentimental, really. You know, I have really brilliant memories of hanging out on the South Bank of hanging out in Central Croydon, of, you know, of hanging out in the Barbican. I've always felt very kind of drawn to those places and I've always found them very friendly and very kind of, I don't know, they they just have suited me as a person and the way I want to live my life. They, they sort of work for me mm-hmm. as environments. And, you know, I like that, you know, you can, you know, the South Bank and the Barbican are places you can just hang out. You know, you can just stay there all day and do different things all day. And I've really missed that, you know, in the last couple of years, not being able to go out much. You know, I that's one of the things I've really missed, actually, is hanging out in places like that. Um, so for me, I guess I have quite a sentimental attachment to a lot of those landscapes and a lot of those buildings because I've spent a lot of my time Sort of loitering and basically being being a bit cheeky by spending much too long over a frothy coffee um and i guess also you know i love the kind of drama and excitement of them as buildings you know they you know if you look you know whenever i go to the national theater or whenever i go to the barbican you know those buildings they just look amazing all the time, you know, and I find it incredible when people sort of say they don't. I was like, well, you're, you're probably having to do a lot of work there to make them not look amazing in your head because they really do. Um, you know, it's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of hyping up there to really not enjoy them. Do you know what, though? I think a lot of it for people is because they just see grey. They're yeah. instantly like, oh, depressing. Like, oh, it's, you know, you wonder if they were painted a different colour, would they maybe appreciate them a bit more? Yeah, although the funny thing, of course, that's happened in the last, like, 10 years is everybody's Victorian house has now got a grey front door, grey windows, grey and painted inside. Yeah, you're right, actually. You're right. So yeah. everyone is turning their houses of other eras into brutalist houses. You know, they're building a modernist extension on the back that's a white box with grey windows and you know they it is kind of weird I've sort of found I found that quite amusing actually seeing how people are sort of gradually turning their Georgian houses or their Victorian houses or their 1930s houses or their Edwardian houses into into sort of little brutalist fan clubs without even necessarily I know that I literally know that front door you're talking about everyone's got it on their house now haven't they they? (laughs) see it all the time unbelievable isn't it I mean most people call it grey plague don't know that kind of thing and and for me you know that isn't really you know sort of making light of it and that but you know I don't necessarily approve of people kind of you know digging up their front gardens and paving them with grey you know stone and and you know and 
that because of loss of greenery that people are doing to their houses is kind of a bit a bit miserable but yeah um but it is but just on a kind of superficial kind of aesthetic level it is a bit amusing yeah i guess um with brutalism as well it's maybe it's just a shock for some people because you've gone from the cute little houses we had before and uh, then bang it's there in your face and um people take time to come round to these things a lot of the time and i suppose like you say some people maybe they'll just never like it which is fine um but like you say you don't have to shy away anymore you can um, proudly say you like it and not be bullied but a lot of those buildings are really old now you know i think that's the other thing to kind of remember is that actually a lot of those buildings are much older than the people who you know might be kind of saying they find them a shock yeah well you know they haven't been there longer than you have um, you so kind that's... of forget they're that old, though. I know it's. I know, like yeah. that they're from like the sixties and stuff. But it, you kind of can't help yourself but think they're modern and they're not, obviously. Mm. But they've still kind of got that feeling well, um, in a way. Yeah, there are some sort of brilliant photos of like the Alton Estate um, in Roehampton, uh, which has got some brilliant little brutalist slab blocks, and then the photos taken at the time when they were built, which is the late fifties. And they've got sort of really, really old-looking cars. You know, cars that look like they've come out of uh, all creatures great and small or something, and sitting outside this kind of, you know, this sort of brand-new, sort of super-modern, brutalist building. And their cars look so old compared to the building, and yet they were sort of contemporaneous, which is a bit bit mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Back then, they must have looked insane because they do some of them they do they just look and they make for great photos don't they sort of if you get the Mm. right angle and obviously like black and white moody shot for Mm. instagram or something good with shadows aren't they and yeah yeah on a sunny day they kind of yeah they really uh they do a full instagram pout for you they do they They do definitely (laughs) um i have to say i feel like brutalism's that kind of architecture that is never gonna it's always going to be kind of controversial. People are always going to have something to say about it, you know, whether it's good or bad. Mm. I think you, you said this, um, I think it was in the one you wrote about brutalism, you know, there, there is sort of that negative association with them, actually, because you see them in the gritty film on the estate, there's crime, and obviously that might influence people, how they perceive them a little bit. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? They sort of become a symbol for something that quite often they're not, and especially when you see something like the Barbican as a backdrop, you know, and they're sort of, you know, a video that's supposed to be kind of showing, you know, some kind of gritty side of London or something, and you're like, well, that's full of millionaires. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know, um, I know. So, yeah. So I, I actually didn't go to the Barbican until a couple of years ago. That was the first time I went there, and it, it kind of, I have to say that for me, that sort of brutalist um, architecture, it does kind of have an old feel to it to me. It feels mm. like a bit like a, a hauntology lost future when you step yes. into it. Yeah, totally. It's like going around a castle, isn't it? It's, it's you know, that kind of... And also that's the other thing. When people sort of go on about, you know, oh, it's grey and blah, 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 And I think, well, you know, so are castles. Nobody goes, oh, God, boring old grey castle. Um, so there is that's something kind of... That's a good comeback. That's actually interesting really good about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> need to, yeah. need to jolly this castle up a bit. We're going to paint it pink like we did with the, the Elephant <laughs> Castle shopping centre. Yeah. Like I quite liked it 
in that way though when I went there I was like wow I feel like I'm stepping back into what they thought the future was going to be you know it had dated but in a nice way in a night like it felt nice to be there and it's such a complete landscape as well isn't it and I think one of the things is that sometimes buildings can you know if they're just this was something that, that happened in Glasgow a lot actually with a lot of the high rises that were built in Glasgow was they just kind of built them indiscriminately on any site that came up um rather than having building a kind of you know a landscape or sort of making it make sense in the street that it was in so um so I think sometimes when you have a complete landscape of a place like the Barbican you you, you it, it sort of does make more sense and I think sometimes when you've just got a block that's sort of by itself it it can it can feel a bit more startling or um or kind of shocking still in it on a street where you've got a lot of little suburban semis and then a giant tower yeah definitely definitely um I mean let's talk about your new book uh Iconicon because that's that'll be out by the time this is out you sort of move forward a little bit you go from the 1980s onward up to the present day with architecture and what made you want to sort of move forward and start to look at the architecture from the 80s onwards? Um, why did you decide to write about that? Well, it was quite interesting, really, because I sort of had no intention of writing about this period. And I remember when I finished Concretopia, I was like, well, I'm definitely not going to write a sequel to that. <laughs> you know, I remember being very kind of like, right, that's that done, I've done that. And I think at the time I wrote it, it sort of felt like we were sort of in the middle of things. And then I guess there was the fire at uh, Grenfell, there was the lock lockdowns. It sort of felt like we reached a horrible full stop. Um, and suddenly I could sort of see, I could sort of see that, that there had been a story that had led up to that, led up to that. And that was interesting in a way that I hadn't been able to sort of I just hadn't been able to sort of understand what I was looking at really I know one of the weird things I think again it's a bit like the thing I was saying earlier about about it's difficult to sort of appreciate somewhere you've grown up and it's only when you move away I think it's also difficult to kind of appreciate things that have grown up in your lifetime you know buildings you could sort of you can remember what was there before or you you know, you rem- you remember it kind of being things being different, and that can be quite hard to accept the new thing and sort of and understand it and understand why it's there and 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 sort of allow it its own story and its own space. Um, and I guess it t- it's taken me a long time to kind of quite work out what I really make of a lot of these places and. And I guess I feel like there's enough gap now, certainly between sort of us and the sort of 80s and 90s, to be able to look back and see those as sort of his, history, you know, see those as stories that tell us something about the sort of people we were told we were supposed to be at those moments and the sort and the buildings that were supposed to make us like that. You know, I feel like there was a lot of that going on with those buildings, you know, that we were being told to kind of um, either become very high-tech or we were told to sort of be very heritage-minded and backward-looking. And those two things 
sort of compete and sort of rub along in a really kind of, you know, abrasive way throughout this period. Um, and that's quite, you know, I just found it really fascinating actually going back and looking at these things. Also, because mm-hmm. there were loads of things that I'd missed. The, and it was sort of nice to... Well, one of the things I've realised with all of the books that I've written is when I set out to do them, because I'm not, because I'm not, a, you know, not an academic, I'm not an architect, I'm not, I'm not a journalist, I don't have a kind of automatic kind of idea of what these things are or a kind of background that sort of tells me the whole story. Um, so I have to sort of go out and investigate all of these things. And... I guess one of the things is, is that they always end up being really surprising. They always end up not being the story I think they're going to be. And so this one just turned out to be full of like amazing stories I couldn't really ever considered. And, you know, so things suddenly like, you know, the building of Docklands or the, all those Millennium Galleries and museums that all got built and the dome and that sort of stuff, uh, right up to the those kind of weird sort of flat-fronted brick flats and houses that are suddenly being built everywhere you know they are the building of the last sort of 10-15 years and they're all like a mini version of Tate Modern um, you know they're a kind of really recognisable sort of icon of the moment and I guess one of the things I was sort of writing about was the icon because you know that has been one of the things that has has really characterised the age is, you know, people talking about, you know, we have to have to have an icon to regenerate a place or an icon that represents somewhere. And I was also really interested in the idea of the iconic buildings that actually are icons, not of, not of that, not of, not of swoosh to sort of define a city or, you know, be a sort of art gallery or whatever, but buildings that, that, that said something about who we were trying to be or who, you know, politicians or developers or architects sort of were trying to kind of suggest that we were. And so in a way, I was as interested in things like business parks and out-of-town retail parks and Barrett homes and wimpy homes and stuff as I was with things like the Gherkin or the Shard or the Millennium Dome and those kind of places. So it just turned out to be a really unexpected story of loads of things I hadn't really ever considered properly and stories that I didn't even know about that all sort of surfaced and you know that's really when you're sort of traveling around to places and talking to people it's so exciting when these stories suddenly come up out of nowhere that you hadn't really imagined or there's a whole new way of looking at a bit of history that you've lived through You've never considered it like that before, and somebody says something, and it totally like unlocks a bit of your brain, and you go, oh, "I completely understand this now in a completely new way." And there were loads of moments like that with interviews with people that made that that made the book sort of come alive when I was writing it. So, so I went from kind of initially being a bit, you know, a few years ago, being like I could never write a book about that, to sort of now I can't I can't really imagine why I thought that because there's so much. It's so interesting. And there's so much to write about. There is so much. And there's, well, there are, like, it's one of those things, like you say, that there's so many iconic things of the the now. Mm. You sort of don't think about it until you've written it down here and you're like, oh, of course, yeah. Like, we're sort of living a bit through this. And also, I think with lead up to the millennium, a lot of it is like 
the idea of what they what the future will be you know it's the millennium it's like wow it's going to be this big thing the world's going to suddenly change overnight um and obviously it doesn't but i think with the architecture they try to sort of put it into that don't they a bit to make it seem like the millennium's around the corner yeah let's make it amazing yeah absolutely and they're all sort of off the back of you know the guggenheim and bilbao being built and that being you know this iconic bit of architecture and you know it being a logo for the city and that sort of thing and the, pro- the problem is by the time you get to all of our Millennium projects, we think there's like 27 or something all being funded by the lottery and the EU all at the same time, all being built all around the country, and they all open within about three years of one another. And, you know, and you think, well, they built, you know, Guggenheim was like a really big success because they built one, you know, and that one thing opened and it was one big. And then here we were like having one open like every three months or something. It was ridiculous. So you couldn't possibly have create that sort of amount of hype or success around every one of these buildings. But the thing that I find really amazing is how many of them actually worked. Because I think in at the time, I remember feeling slightly disgruntled about all these Millennium projects and kind of thinking it's just ridiculous that they were all being built and that, you know, they all sounded so like, you know, because loads of them were sort of edutainment, weren't they? Loads of them were interactive museums. And, you know, there was all that thing about lifelong learning, which was such a new labour thing, wasn't it? And they all had that kind of, that that sort of thing about them. I remember just being a bit eye-rolly at the time. And looking back now, it's, I, and, I, and I guess I sort of felt like most of them had failed or something. And I think that's a general feeling is that most of these buildings failed but you look back now and hardly any of them failed most of them went on to be really successful and you know sure the dome you know the stuff that they put in the millennium dome was for the most part pretty kind of ropey but then once they turned it into the 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 o2 it was it was a brilliant venue you know the building itself was incredible you know it was very sad to see it sort of all shredded the other day oh god wasn't that a surprise to see (laughs) I know. I couldn't really believe it. I thought I've, I've, I've also awful. I mean, awful, selfish moment. The very last sentence of my chapter about the Millennium Dome was the architect who I spoke to. The architect of the dome, um, Mike Davids, who's brilliant, one of the architects at, um, at Richard Rogers. He's amazing. He looks a bit like Dumbledore, but wears entirely bright red clothes, and um, and he is like this mega brain, and he's like totally like plugged into the future and you know Mr High Tech he's totally amazing and he and he the the thing that I used as the last sentence in that chapter was him saying you know it did the job it's still doing the job <laughs> and I thought oh no not now oh no that was an awful thing to have to have ended that chapter on I've made a, such a mistake <laughs> Oh dear! So it's, it bra- it's crazy, say, you know, isn't it? Because it's like this book is brand new, and like the storm decides yeah. to blow it off. It's already out of date. <laughs> yeah, already out of date. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I know. I was mortified. I thought, oh dear, of all the thing, all the takes I could have made, that I went yeah. for that. So there we are. I mean, I saw some quite funny memes about that. I don't know if you saw them about like, oh. um Everybody's boyfriend's got a pair of pants like this, and it was a picture of the picture of the dome, <laughs> all in tatters. Mm. But hopefully they'll uh, they'll they'll sort that out, get it fixed up. Yeah, I hope so. It'd probably be quite hard, sort of, just because I think when you know when it was put up, I think it was 
you know, just sewing it together up there is going to be quite hard I, and getting all the tension right is going to be harder than it looks, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you also talk about sort of, you know, the out of town malls and and that sort of thing and mm. it's funny because there's actually one here in Southampton not a mall but it's like a, it's called Leisure World they're going to knock it down I was obviously reading this book and we went sort of down there a couple of weeks ago and I thought god that is such a late 90s early 2000s thing you know it's it's dead now and it's, it had the cinema the bowling alley it had pizza hut tgis and it's like that it doesn't seem that Ooh. long ago but that's like a piece of history now that's sort of going in the bin you know they're going to knock it down and that seems so futuristic and cool at the time and it's just it's really quite sad actually to see it because it's all like rusting away now and um i mean the cinema's still open but that's all that's left in it but it just it's like it's one of those places people would have their parties there as a kid yeah and it's funny isn't it because that you know the when you know when those out of town sort of retail parks and 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 business parks and stuff were sort of opened but particularly the retail parks and the shopping centers it was, you know, big death knell to the high street. You know, that was that was the big thing. And then they were this kind of, you know, people, you know, sort of would go there because it was easier to park and you didn't have all the fuss mm. that you would have had in going to mm. a town centre. And then, obviously, now with online shopping, it's done exactly the same thing to the retail parks that, um, that they did to town centres. So we've ended up with, you know, it's a bit of kind of like, you know, it's a bit like one of those Godzilla films, you know, where you have yeah. various yeah. giant monsters coming along, ravaging something in succession. So just when you think, you know, just when you think one monster has ruined everything, another monster comes along and ruins that one. So, yeah, it's it's hard to know where it's going to end, that one, really. No, I know. It's funny because it did make me look at the new, like this new cinema complex they've built and everything. And I thought to myself, this looks incredible now, but one day you're going to be the rusty old Odeon IMAX cinema <laughs> that no one cares about anymore. And you think, what's going to be next? I mean, I hope obviously it has a long life, but um, it, it's something really sad about when you see like buildings like that, when they were so full of life at one time and the place to be, and then they sort of just completely run down and, yeah. and nobody cares anymore yeah they become very sad don't they very very sad yeah. and, that, and sort of I remember going to I went to a, a massive shopping mall in the US in in Rochester and it was one of the first of those kind of 1950s sort of mega mega town center malls um and it and it was all pretty much deserted. There was like a wool shop, I think was why we went in there. And there was about three little tiny indie things hanging on in this giant, giant shopping centre. And it had this huge kinetic fountain in the middle of it. We sort of walked around it and it was just the ghost of kind of, you know, fun and optimism and excitement of that sort of atomic age era. Just, you know, you just felt absolutely sort of, totally sort of crushed by it you know this this weird scenario that you that you're in where all of these places that this entire massive environment have become totally redundant and and not only that the sort of spirit of it was also you know lingering in a really like unhealthy sort of sad 
malignant way. You know, it was really that's really it, isn't it? Odd. There's this this real sad like spirit of the place, isn't there? It's like oh, it's really. I, do you know what? Have you been yeah. been to the Whitgift in Croydon at all? Because I went a couple of years ago, and that seemed like that. To be honest, it's been a while, but it seemed very like there's nothing in there tragic story in itself isn't it because of that whole sort of you know planning blight of basically we're going to knock it all down and replace it with a giant westfield i know that isn't going to happen and uh and it's not like that wasn't going to happen for a long time that's been pretty much on the cards that is not going to happen for several years um but in the meantime they've managed to kind of you know totally ruin the the, the shopping center that is there so by by kind of you know basically frightening any businesses out of opening there by saying it's about to be knocked down and everyone sort of stopped investing in it and it's all really sad and you know dappy um but that would still be a perfectly good shopping center if they hadn't done that and it was just reckless a reckless idea to kind of think that you could sort of you know that mega shopping was going to save the center of croydon um because, you know, mega shopping isn't really what anyone's doing now. No, it is sad because um, for a shopping centre, it was all right, wasn't it? It had everything you needed. And uh, now it's got yeah. just, well, like I say, I haven't been in a, a few years. But I remember the last time I went, I was really shocked, actually, at how downhill it had gone. You know, there was, mm. you know, normally it's so busy, like on a Saturday. There's just people, you know, sitting at the fountains and everything. It was just like, there's nobody here. I don't know whether they yeah. try and turn it around and get people to come back in, but, I mean, that's their best bet now, isn't it, really? Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, maybe they're just going to have to kind of make it into a bit more of a sort of, you know, market, Casbah-type thing, you know, because I doubt they're going to be able to get in great big chains and stuff into it in the way that they used to have. So I think they might have to be a bit more flexible about how they how they use it. I used to work there several years in the bookshop in uh, what is now Waterstone. Sheridan Hughes at the time back in the 80s and um, at that point it was before it had its kind of Lady Di style makeover <laughs> where it suddenly went all Victorian conservatories and, and uh, slightly flouncy balconies and at that point it was very kind of angular concrete and it had a hexagonal pub on a pole uh, called the Forum and it had giant like escalators and whirly around kind of concrete ramps and stuff and um so obviously, I pine for that because I don't um, even remember that because I'm, I'm too weird, young. Weirdo. Yeah, well, that, exactly. I mean, it went a really, really long time. I mean, that would have been the late eighties that happened. Yeah, I mean, that, and that was something else you kind of talked about. All these, um, you know, all these pop up things and everything that they tried to do in Croydon, and I mean, that's a very of the mm. moment thing, isn't it? Sort of mm. in the last ten years, the one in Croydon has been really successful. I think, yeah. and you know, it's a very popular spot and every time you go in there it's sort of rammed and mm. um you know that does seem to have kind of weathered the the um the pandemic a bit better than some of the other places but yeah it it's not a it's not like a permanent solution it is a sort of temporary mall you, you can't stay there forever just because it's made out of shipping containers so it's not you know it's not built to last really i mean i love what they've done around east croydon i think they've done such a good job because that whole area around there has been derelict my whole life and then you know building those flats and stuff was a really good idea and also opening mm. up they opened up like a new exit to the to the station that would go straight into the town center 
which was such a good idea. And you kind of look at it now and kind of go, why did they, why did they not do that years ago? That's a really great idea. And so I feel like there were loads of really good little things that happened, uh, or good big things that happened. Um, and then some absolute horrors as well, like Saffron Square, which looks a bit like the London 2012 Olympics logo as a building, like really gaudy pinks and pinks and purples. Croydon is a city that, or not a city, it's not even a city, a town. It's all or nothing really there, I think, a lot of the time. It is a very up and down kind of place, isn't it? It really, really is. I think that is, I think that's exactly what it's like because it, it's had all of these moments back in its history. It's had, you know, several boom times over the last hundred years uh, and loads of busts as well. They always end badly. And then this one, you know, this this current kind of bust that's happened has interrupted all of these grand plans that were going on loads of buildings kind of still not finished that will you know that are still going up but they're going up into an area now that won't have any investment in it because the council hasn't got any money um so you know that is quite sad you know that that we've seen it happen again but you know it's interesting one of the planners i spoke to who worked there in the noughties he was saying that he wondered whether it was a bad thing to try and stop Croydon going in this cycle because he said, you know, maybe that is what Croydon is. Maybe, you know, maybe that is the personality of Croydon is that it will always boom yeah. and bust and that it will go go crackers and, you know, d- decide to completely replan itself, do a third of it and then go bust because um, that's what it's done. That's what it keeps doing, you know. So I thought it was quite interesting actually to kind of go, well, maybe that's yeah. its personality. Yeah, and I was going to say, it's quite an interesting take. It kind of does have, it kind of is its personality to be honest. And, uh, you know, mate, so be it, maybe that, that's how mm. it should be. Thanks for chatting with me today, John. It's been really good. And I mean, for any listeners wanting to read any of your books, obviously Concretopia, Outskirts, uh, the new one, Iconicon, where can they go to get your books? Um, well, any kind of... Uh, any good sort of indie bookshop should have them or Waterstones or any of the big kind of online bookshops uh, should all have them. I've got a kind of list of links on my website, johngrindrod.co.uk, which might be might be helpful. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for having me. It's been lovely to talk to you. So there we have it. If you like the sound of John's work, don't forget to head over to johngrindrod.co.uk where you can find out more. And also a note from me, recently Spotify on the mobile app have started allowing ratings. So if you're listening to this on Spotify, it will take you honestly like about three seconds and you can leave a rating for the show. There's no review, just a rating, but it really, really makes a difference. And I would really appreciate it if you could anything else sense of place podcast related you can head over to senseofplacepod.com other than that that's all from me so i hope you have a great week wherever you're listening from